if we're going to address, if we're going to effectively address the structural impediments that exist in, in the academy today, and, and they're deep, right? Structural impediments towards giving students what they need and society what it needs and addressing affordability issues and debt issues and time issues. If we're going to address that and we're going to provide a value proposition that is compelling enough that students will choose it, that's going to require transformative change, not just incremental change. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious U. I'm joined today by one of higher ed's foremost experts on transformational change leadership. Dr. Wallace Pond has been in the trenches leading transformational change for decades, serving in multiple CEO, executive, and partnership roles. He is a founder of Idea Pathway and the Transformation Collaborative, which we're going to hear about in just a few minutes. Both of these support transformative thinking and operational excellence across all areas of higher ed and the private sector. His combination of deep educational expertise as well as C-level managerial and leadership experience offer a unique and a valuable perspective on contemporary education, organizational challenges, and new leadership models. We will provide a link to his impressive bio in the show notes so that you can see the full details of his background. But for now, just know that he has a highly interesting and uh, very successful professional trajectory. Wallace, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Thank you, Melissa. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Now, you have recently published a book based on everything that you learned as a chief executive <laughs> over the course of your career. Uh, the book, very appropriately, is called Leadership in the Real World. And before we started the interview, I did mention to you that one of the things I really appreciate about the book is that it is it is real world. It's very practical. There are uh, many, many valuable takeaways in the book um, that I think anybody who's in a leadership role or aspiring to a leadership role would would and will appreciate. What inspired you to write this book and why now? So thanks for the for the question, Melissa. Um, interesting. It's not a book um, that is, I think, a common leadership book in the sense that the genesis of the book was actually uh, emails that I would send to my senior leadership team back in my very first, what I would call substantial CEO role. This goes back to the early 2000s. Um, and I would have an experience, I would learn something, I would observe something, and I would write it up, uh, usually a small um, kind of vignette. And I would send it out to the people who reported to me. And initially it was called Things I've Learned as a Manager. Um, very kind of real world applied uh, and actual true to, to the organization that we were in. Um, and so when I put the book together, it was a combination initially of those emails and other observations and experiences I've had over probably 20 years in the C-suite and, and 15 as a CEO. Um, and 
the, the rationale for turning it into a book was that over the last, call it several years, it became very, very clear to me uh, that the traditional leadership models that a lot of us have ascribed to were not only not working, um, they're often detrimental. Uh, the, the mismatch between what leaders need to be capable of and the kind of traits they need to have in this current operating environment is vastly different from even 15, 20, let alone say 30 years ago. And so that was part of the inspiration was, you know, I, I realized that I had had decades um, in uh, senior executive roles. Um, I had learned a lot through that process. And I thought it would be helpful to put together um, a book on leadership, um, but one that's very consumable, you know, one, one that is uh, conversational. Um, and to your point, that also includes a lot of actual kind of here's what happened and here's what I learned. Um, and this may be helpful to you as well. Mm. Well, and in the first section, uh, you do suggest that there is a need to redefine leadership with self-knowledge being an essential component of this definition. So I think this is part of what you're talking about in terms of a yeah. new way of thinking about leadership. Can you tell us more about why you believe self-understanding, self-knowledge is so important for effective leadership? And do you have some suggestions for how leaders can grow in this area? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do have some thoughts about um, uh, why it's important and also about what we can can do to prepare ourselves better as leaders. First of all, um, I believe that self-knowledge has become core to how leaders bring value in this operational environment that we're in today. This, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. And by the way, VUCA was identified by the U.S. Army actually many years ago, um, but I've borrowed it and it applies very well in the civilian world. Uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Self-knowledge, I believe, has become core to how leaders today actually achieve success and bring value in whatever organization they're in. And the reason for this, Melissa, is we've come to a place where, on balance, leaders really have to generate success through others by supporting human capital. Um, as an organization's greatest asset, rather than success through their own efforts or technical knowledge, um, et cetera. And, and that requires deep intra and interpersonal intelligence. So that's kind of the, the, the theoretical foundation of why I think it's become so critical. And the reality is, in terms of like how we can grow in this area as leaders, is... The emo that emotional intelligence is less trainable than technical skills of the past. So I don't, I don't want to be naive about that. You know, in the past, we trained leaders on things like budgeting and strategic planning templates, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, performance evaluations. And those are all reasonable, important things to do. Um, but, but, but those are much more easy to, to train than the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Having said that, um, it is possible uh, to grow and become more skilled as a leader in those areas. And my sense is that the starting point for that comes from, from self-awareness and a willingness to be vulnerable. Mm 
right? Which neither of which are typical, at least until recently, words that you would use when you're describing leadership. And, and the reason for that, this self-awareness and this willingness to be vulnerable um, is this idea that leaders today don't know everything. They don't do everything. They generate success through others. And one way to get started on that process of self-awareness um, is simply through coaching and even counseling. Um, interestingly, if you look at data on mental health challenges in the C-suite, um, executives are far more likely to report mental health challenges and their symptoms um, than individuals in different parts of the organization. Everyone is struggling today um, and everyone is having issues with mental health, but it seems to affect uh, senior leaders more. Ironically, they are less likely <laughs> to acknowledge that um, to be vulnerable, uh, to accept health, help, excuse me. Um, and so I think the starting point <clears throat> of that self-awareness notion um, and the willingness to be vulnerable is to step outside of the traditional leadership role and focus on self, right? Um, uh, uh, what do I know about myself to be true? What are my strengths and weaknesses? Um, what do I worry about? Um, where do I need help? Um, and I think those questions can be answered through uh, executive coaching in the context of, of leadership and also um, mental health or, or psychotherapeutic counseling. Um, I've done both myself and both have been critical for me in terms of getting me from A to B and supporting my own success. Thanks for that. That's a really helpful perspective. You know, as I'm listening to you and as I consider the higher education context in particular, the extent to which the higher ed environment uh, is so challenging for leaders now more than ever, uh, the fact that things are evolving so quickly, the pressure that is on leaders to act uh, in a very decisive and uh, quick way in response to these challenges, I, I have to wonder, how do you balance this need to be vulnerable, to be courageous, uh, while also uh, responding to the expectations that the board and even your followers have of you? Um, I've read somewhere that, that particularly during challenging times, during uncertain times, that, that followers look to their leaders to have the answers to to be strong and to be very certain um, and that that helps give others in the organization some sense of uh, calmness that things are going to be okay. So how, how do you balance those things? Um, how do you uh, be reliant on other people who you're working with while also uh, demonstrating the strength that is expected of you as a leader. Well, and that's just smart as well, right? Because I know, you know, you and I and anyone listening to the to the podcast, I think we all intuitively know that regardless of how talented or smart or experienced, you know, any given individual or leader is, um, it's exceedingly rare that one individual is better or smarter or more insightful than a team of people. It's just almost never happens, right? And so this idea of, of success through others 
would be a great idea regardless. But it, but in the current environment, you know, where it's so complex and so volatile, and we're in such a hyper change, you know, uh, situation where the targets are always moving. Um, we are much more likely to be successful in that environment if human capital truly is an organization's greatest asset than if it is not, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I would add to that, you know, um, the reality, I, I think some people have been socialized to kind of see leaders in a certain way, right? You know, the strong, courageous, you know, leader who's out in front, um, you know, directing traffic, et cetera, which is, which is in conflict in some ways with this notion of compassion, humility, vulnerability, et cetera. And I would argue that that, that dissonance is, is false, that, that that notion is mistaken. I would say that the reality is that those things are not actually at odds at all, um, despite the fact that we've been socialized to think that they are. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, courage is at the core of vulnerability, right? Courage is not giving orders. Courage is not doing something the way you've done it 50 times before. Courage is not yelling at someone. Courage is not uh, jumping up and down when a performance objective is not achieved. Courage is putting yourself out there without knowing beforehand how something will turn out, right? Courage is admitting in front of other people, including other leaders or people you report to, that you don't have the answer to a big problem, for example. And in this hyper-change hyper environment, making decisions in the absence of compelling data shows strength and courage. And that's another way that the environment has changed, right? In the past, there was this you know, mantra about database decision-making. And if you have data and you can depend on it, that's still a plus. And I think as AI works its way into organizations and higher ed, um, we'll shift sort of predictive analytics. And that will be our modern version of how we use data. But the reality is today, things change so fast that if you do have a large compelling set of data, it's probably too late. <laughs> we've, we've probably already moved on from what that data tells us, right? So that's another example of, of courage, which is make, taking risks, making decisions that you aren't sure about, right? Where you don't have uh, compelling data. So I would argue that this idea of compassion and humility and, and, and vulnerability, et cetera, um, this notion of admitting mistakes, um, giving other people the freedom to fail, deferring to others um, that may have you know, critical skills or experiences that you don't have, regardless of where they are on the org chart, right? When, when all that happens, when a leader has the courage to acknowledge his or her own huma humanity, let's call it, that goes a long way in validating the humanity in others, right? Um, and that goes far beyond performance objectives or strategic plans, et cetera. It really is about honoring the humanity in organizations, which is, I think, a core responsibility of leaders today. Mm. Great, that's a that's a compelling uh, way to look at to look at this and this whole notion of 
uh, bringing humility into your leadership uh, style uh, and, and marrying it with strength um, and compassion and vulnerability and courage, um, that it's the whole, the whole package in terms of how you enact your leader, leadership um, style and capabilities. So thank you for that. Um, and I know you write quite a bit about that um, in the first section of the book where you, you talk about uh, the fact that these things may, may at first glance seem to be at odds with each other, but, but mm -hmm. uh, the most effective leadership encompasses the whole range. So. And, and, I, and, and just to be clear, uh, it took me a while to figure this out. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I was a disciple of the, you know, kind of the traditional model of stuff. I mean, I, I was always a little bit different as a leader, but you know, it, it was it was twenty years of senior leadership and fifteen as a CEO and and thirty five years in organizations observing that got me to this point. Um, uh, but it was it was it was genuinely earned. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, I think that's true for most of us. You know, we, we get our greatest learning just about the time we're ready to, to move on. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so that's why it's so good you've written it into a book so that you can share everything you've learned with, with others. Now, you have also written and you've spoken quite a bit about the need for innovation and transformation in higher education. Uh, can you tell us what you mean by this? As you know, when people use the word innovation, uh, they can mean a whole variety of different things. So what kind of innovation are you right. talking about? What kind of transformation do you have in mind? Well, I think this goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier relative to, to leadership, which is whether we're talking about what works from a leadership perspective or how organizations can be functional today. Um, in, in, I think it ties back to the, to the fact that the environment in which we're operating, both private sector and higher education, is just dramatically different than it was even 10 years ago. Um, uh, it, the, the, I think the changes are are older than that. You know, the trend is much older than that. But the intense last 10 years and then and then COVID have really accelerated trends that were already in play and gotten us gotten us to a place where the incrementalism of the past is simply no longer adequate for the nature of the threats and challenges. And I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail about that. So, so my sense is that many people in higher education misunderstand transformation, right? If we think about, uh, if we think about higher education as an institution, an, an industry, a culture, um, it, it was built from the ground up to perpetuate the status quo. That's why it's been roughly the same for centuries. Uh, it, it was foundationally set up that way. Um, whereas, whereas transformative change is, is not change that's just hard or changes how you do something or even necessarily something that's innovative. It's about a radical departure from the status quo. And this could be culture, it could be the market, it could be educational delivery, it could be what you sell, it could even be an institutional mission, right? So I had a client, for example, who was explaining to me about the transformation that they had done in the admissions process. 
and they were talking about shifting to a very advanced uh, um, digital imaging system, and they were done, you know, with uh, uh, faxes and snail mail, and for the most part, even done with with uh, uh, scanned documents, etc. It was all automated, and and they and they felt like that was transformational. But I pointed out to them that yes, they had changed the process for submitting admissions documents. It was easier, it was faster, it was more secure, but it was the same process. It was submitting transcripts and recommendation letters uh, and test scores to a system that was going to evaluate you based on the same criteria to get into the school or not. And then you were going to take the same credit bearing classes over years to achieve the same credential. And so that's what I mean. I think sometimes we misunderstand what transformation actually is. I think that going forward, because of the nature of the challenges that we're facing both internally and externally, that it's, it's going to require genuine reinvention on the part of a su substantial number of institutions if they wanna remain relevant and if they wanna thrive in the future. And that might mean serving completely different populations. It might mean uh, using uh, non-credit, non-degree uh, training programs. It may be partnerships where the curriculum actually comes from industry, you know, not from the faculty. It could be lots of things, but but I think the short version is um, if we're going to address, if we're going to effectively address the structural impediments that exist in, in the academy today, and, and they're deep, right? Structural impediments towards giving students what they need and society what it needs and addressing affordability issues and debt issues and time issues. If we're going to address that and we're going to provide a value proposition that is compelling enough that students will choose it, that's going to require transformative change, not just incremental change. There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University Master's Degree Program in Higher Education Administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. 
Take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. Wallace, I want to go back to what you were talking about right before the break, which is your belief that higher education needs significant change. In fact, I would refer to what you are describing using um, the definition of Clay Christensen as disruption, disruptive change. What do you think it takes on an institutional level? What is required of an institution, of the institution's leaders, its board, in order to pull off this magnitude of change, this level of change that you are talking about? So I have developed models for this and implemented them over time. And um, I won't uh, punish the audience with, you know, <laughs> dozens <laughs> of things that should they be true are likely to support transformation. But I will at a high level address that question. Um, so first of all, uh, foundationally at, at the highest level, my experience has been that transformational change because it's so difficult right and because it's not just process it's not just technology because it's culture and behavior right and because it 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 challenges what people are invested in and have been for decades it requires this just rock solid unmovable commitment by leadership in the institution and that might be executive it might be board level it might be opinion leaders it requires this unmovable commitment to the change itself. If that's missing, it just doesn't happen because the inertia against it is so great. Um, I think the two biggest barriers to change um, out of the gate, the first is denial that change is necessary, right? Um, uh, and not denial that change is happening, but that it's necessary, right? And I think, and I think, the second um, is this is this investment in the status quo that I was speaking about. Many, many people have built a life around how it is, right? And how it was um, when they got there. And, and transformation also requires transformation among the people in the organization, right? So this is not your typical, we're gonna, you know, change student information system tasks um, as top difficult as is is that can be um, and and I, I I can I can share a few more things that if they are present in the organization um, the transformation is, is more likely to be successful um, one example is um, uh, you know does, does the culture support reinvention now or not? Because in some cases, the culture itself has to be evolved before the transformation is even possible. Um, another example might be, uh, do we have a really clearly defined set of problems that will be solved or goals that will be achieved 
through the change, right? Can we articulate how stakeholders will be better off? As hard as it might be, um, uh, do we have adequate resources? Do we have the stamina to stay the course? Because unlike incrementalism, transformative change is years in the execution, right? It's not a, a, a short, something very basic. And I'll hear what's interesting. Is there an actual change management plan? Because I'll tell you, when I work with clients and I do, you know, presentations, workshops, keynotes, whatever, and I ask for a show of hands, um, you know, I'll say something like, you know, the last 10, you know, uh, projects that you've initiated here at the university or the last 10 uh, um, in, uh, initiatives that you've, that you've launched, how many of them were accompanied with an actual change management plan? And the number is usually zero. Not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and by the time you get to transformational change, it's essentially impossible mm -hmm. to achieve that without having a very robust, resourced, distributed change management plan. Um, so that's also, I, I, I think, a key part. Um, and in terms of, you know, um, uh, why is this rare? You know, it's interesting. If you look at the last 10, 11 years, we've had over 1,500 consolidations, uh, closures, mergers in higher education. Um, and very, very few of those institutions actually engaged in robust, in a robust transformational effort before they either merged or closed um, or were consolidated, et cetera. And, and part of that is because, you know, it's hard. It takes a lot of bandwidth. Um, it takes resources and very few leaders, let alone leadership or very few leadership teams, let alone single leaders have the, you know, the capacity to manage the daily business, then manage the disruption then plan for the future. Oh, by the way, that's a transformed future. That's not for the faint of heart, <laughs> which is one of the reasons that it's just, you just don't see it very often. It happens. We have fascinating examples out there um, in higher education and other places, but it is rare. You know, I have to ask you about governance and the role of the board yeah. in all of this, because I, I like to look at job ads, for example, and uh, it, it seems like these days, whenever you see uh, an advertisement for a president, uh, the institution, the board is looking for, for an innovative leader. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen who winds up getting hired in yeah. many of these positions. And rarely is it a truly innovative, yeah. transformational type of leader. What I see more often is somebody who gets hired who's more of an incremental right. um, change leader who's who's good at, you know, uh, doing things around the edges and maintaining somewhat of that status quo. So so what do you do with the board? Yeah, so so this is a whole other podcast, Melissa, by the way. <laughs> we'll <laughs> we'll give this okay. the full treatment later. Um, but it's a really, really important question. And I will go a step further and I will, you know, say to, uh, you know, to the, to the listeners, 
just go to the Chronicle of Higher Education or higheredjobs.com and look at the uh, job descriptions for chancellor, president, et cetera. And you could overlay 80% of the language on each right. one, right? It, it's, it's, they want an innovative uh, people leader uh, who um, can lead change, um, uh, um, is an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's all the same language, right? But to your point, um, those are rarely the people who end up in the role. And there are several sort of structural reasons for that. And I'll try to be brief. But, but one key reason is that the pool of those people is very small. And if you, and if you limit yourself to the pool in academe, it's even smaller. And the reason for that is if you come up through academe, you know, typical, you are faculty, maybe a program coordinator or a chair, maybe a dean, uh, maybe an associate provost, whatever, you came up the role. At no point in that process did what did the job prepare you for taking risks, for um, being an entrepreneur, for PL management, for managing change? You had to deal with crisis and you had to manage expense, right? So by the time we get to the pool in academe where these people are being selected, the pool is very small. And even if you expand outside of that pool, and some institutions have done that successfully, that's a very hard sell to a lot of um, institutional constituents, faculty, alumni, uh, um, board members themselves, you name it, to bring someone into the organization that may fit that profile, but that isn't an academic, right? Um, that doesn't understand higher education culture. Another barrier, another reason is that the search process in higher ed for executives is just flat broken. It's just brutally broken, um, both when it's done internally and when it's done with search firms. And, and, and what, what typically happens is, either way, right, what typically happens is there's a little bit of time spent on the front end creating, articulating that notion of what the ideal candidate looks like, but the process itself makes it almost impossible to deliver that person, that candidate. If you look at traditional search firms, um, uh, particularly the large ones, they've got you know 20 somethings in a back room reviewing resumes and people from the database. They don't particularly understand the needs of the university or the college. Uh, they don't understand what a person like that would actually look like. The networks don't extend to those people. Um, and so what happens is by the time that the search firm is actually presenting candidates, the process itself has filtered out the most compelling atypical candidates. The process itself does that, right? And then even if you're lucky enough to get candidates like that to an interview stage, right? You have so many constituencies that you have to impress, right? That the, for who, whose desires you have to meet, right? And they're typically wildly different. 
students and faculty and alumni and board and the executive team that the process itself makes it very difficult. And lastly, and in this, you know, I don't want to, you know, offend people, but very, very few higher education boards are really, really additive. Very few higher education boards have the right people, um, the right mission, um, fully understand their governance role with strategy versus, say, operations. Um, very few have the expertise that they need. Very few engage in healthy conflict and hold um, leaders accountable in the institution. So very rarely are boards additive in terms of supporting transformational change, hiring the right leaders, um, uh, um, and, and just providing um, you know, a sustainable, robust future for institutions. And I know that what I just said is gonna be a little bit controversial, um, but I'm quite confident that what I said is accurate. Yeah. Well, I think I think this is a topic for another podcast <laughs> down the road. So um, you have raised several uh, really good questions and uh, issues that uh, we need to we could give and we should give more more attention to. So now I want to uh, pivot here. You have embarked on an exciting new initiative called the Transformation Collaborative. Can you give us a quick overview of what this is, why you are so excited about it, and what you hope to accomplish uh, through it? So thank you very much for, and I'll I'll try to maintain my excitement here um, as I as I share the answer uh, because it really is something amazing and something that I think kind of my whole career has led to. Um, it is a fascinating and I think timely. Uh, um, or in, in initiative. Um, very simply, the Transformation Collaborative is an organization that we've designed for one purpose. And that purpose is to support post-secondary institutions that are willing to reinvent themselves for the reality they're in now, rather than the one in which they were founded. Um, our research and others' research suggests that well over half of all colleges and universities today are at fairly extreme risk um, for the future. And most of these institutions do not, as I mentioned previously, do not have the bandwidth or the skills to engage in their own transformation and do it on their own, even if they're willing, right? So if you look at the universe out there, there are of, of institutions that could benefit from change. Um, you, there are very few that are willing and able, and, and they typically do it. There are, and there's another layer that is willing but not able, <laughs> and that's where the TC comes in. And then there's another layer that are not willing or able, right? And they tend to be in that group of 1,500 that are already gone or recon, reconstructed or whatever. Um, and the TC, really reinvents this support, the, 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 the service provider model and what happens on the client partner side as well. It's an, it's an association of professionals, extremely skilled, like-minded professionals, particularly like-minded about transformation. Um, and uh, it is a model that is based upon a long-term embedded relationship 
with shared execution and accountability for results. If we want to look at what's kind of broken in the consultancy model too, it's that even good consultants, even talented consultants are almost never accountable for execution after the fact, right? Um, in fact, with the way we've set this up with the Transformation Collaborative, the client actually decides if we get paid um, based upon agreed outcomes. It's a very, very different model on the front end and on the back end for the client itself. You know, most consultancies are very transactional. A college has a problem. You know, they need to uh, tweak their student information system or they want to improve retention by two percentage points. So just pick up, pick something, right? They've got an accreditation coming up and the consultant comes in, you know, does a very transactional task throws the report over the wall and moves on to the next client. Although we also focus on operational excellence, everything we do is through the lens of transformation. And so it's about coming out the back end as a different institution than we went into it. And, you know, I, I, I reached out to, to 20 different people and organizations to ask if they'd be interested in joining me in this process. Um, and 18 agreed almost immediately. And what that told me was that this, this idea, this model is really resonating. And, and uh, my, my hope obviously is that, um, uh, you know, that we, that we connect with institutions that really can benefit um, and that we uh, provide really, um, uh, you know, game-changing results that either help institutions survive or thrive um, and have a long-term future because they've been able to reinvent themselves. Very timely indeed. Um, and it fits beautifully with everything that you are talking about that we've been talking about over the last, the last several minutes. So um, I have, we have a signature question on Ingenious and yep. uh, in your case, I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on it. So okay. <laughs> um, I, want, I want to think about post-COVID. So the, the years, the era that's ahead of us, essentially. And in your opinion, what do you think needs to be on the radar of every college or university leader as, as we look to the future post-COVID? What does your crystal ball suggest? for the future state of higher education? So great, great question to end on, Melissa, appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> so the reality is that although COVID has, um, has, has started or has initi initiated a, a few trends of its own, it really has been a massive accelerant of trends that were already in progress. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, the move away from credit-bearing degree-granting post-secondary education. Uh, we've been in an enrollment decline for 10 years, substantial enrollment decline in that part of traditional higher education. Uh, started way before COVID. Um, and one of the things that's happening is that people are moving to other options, options that, that um, make more sense for, for the individual. Um, and so I would say... Every leader needs to have absolute clarity 
going forward on why any student would choose his or her institution over others. If you don't have absolute clarity on that, on the answer to that question, you're already in trouble, right? Because the number of students that are choosing degree granting Title IV credit bearing institutions is, decre is, is decreasing at a fairly substantial rate. And if you look at where they're going, um, you know, Strata Education came out with a research report just a week or two ago, fascinating, in which they discovered that 62% of all of the individuals who are not currently in college, mostly or currently in post-secondary education, mostly because of COVID, 62% when intend to go back to school, but not in a college or university. Mm. They intend to pursue industry training, certificates, uh, boot camps, uh, you name it, non-credit, short-term, uh, job skills types programs. Um, the second thing that I would say that the institute, that the, every leader has to really, really have clarity on is, is that the value proposition and the return on investment for the student have to be bulletproof, right? You, you can't be in the business of trying to convince students to borrow six figures to pursue a degree that's going to leave them crippled by debt. You can't be in that business anymore. Not just because I question the ethics of it, but because students, the market for that is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So any leader out there in any college or university today has to, has to ensure that the value proposition and the return on investment for the students are bulletproof which ties back to the first one, which is why would they choose you to begin with, right? Relatedly, um, in order to, to thrive, um, virtually all, not all, but nearly all institutions will need to have a business model that provides multiple revenue streams, some of which are high margin. Very, very few institutions going forward, and even today, are capable of actually operating with a single uh, revenue model from tuition. It's just almost impossible in today's world to build a business model that is sustainable, that will provide enough revenue relative to fixed costs to work. There are some exceptions. Um, you know, there's a small sliver of higher education that is so wealthy <laughs> and so powerful <laughs> and so exclusive that they can do whatever they want for the foreseeable future. But the other, call it 85% or so, is on a spectrum of risk from, wow, stuff we used to do isn't working as well. Uh, geez, we're a lot less exclusive than we used to be. All the way to, oh my God, we can't make payroll next quarter. That's kind of the spectrum of the 85%. Um, and going back to the transformational change issue, a lot of the things that have to be true for institutions to survive in the value proposition, um, in the return on investment, the ability to, to meet those um, structural challenges, those things can only come from transformative change. They simply won't happen if it's just dinking and dunking around the edges.
I'm Melissa Morsolson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CELEP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed webinar series. In next week's episode, I speak with educational entrepreneur and innovator of one of higher ed's most revolutionary experiments, Shai Reshef. Shai is founder and president of the University of the People, the world's first and only nonprofit, tuition-free, American-accredited online university. Driven by a personal passion to provide higher ed access to qualified individuals regardless of geographic, financial, or societal constraints, President Reshef has been recognized worldwide for his work, including being named as one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. There is so much that we can learn from the University of the People's ultra-low-cost, high-quality college degree model, including how to structure a learning experience with what matters most at the core. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious community. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.